This Jewish History Podcast is sponsored in honor of my dear friends and stalwart supporters of Torch, Peter and Becky Botvin. Before we begin this edition of the Jewish History Podcast, I want to let you know about a brand new podcast series called The Mitzvah Podcast. This is hosted by me, and thank God this marks the sixth different podcast channel that I've been fortunate enough to host. And the objective of this podcast is to offer like a snapshot into the mitzvos, into the commandments of the Torah. I say just tell us that there's 613 different mitzvos, and we're going to go through them in the order in which they appear in the Torah. And we're going to give a little brief between 20 and 30 minutes each mitzvah to give uh, a little bit of a background of the application, some of the interesting aspects of it. And it's a very nice way to familiarize yourself, to get a certain degree of literacy into the mitzvahs of the Torah. So check it out on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts, The Mitzvah Podcast by me, Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. And as always, you can email me, rabbiwolby at gmail.com. We picked up the story of the judges after the miraculous destruction of the enemies of Israel. Yavin and his star general, Sisra, have been vanquished. Peace reigned for 40 years, but as we have seen previously, the period of the judges is marked by ebbs and flows. When the Jewish people are behaving as they should, they're unmolested by any sort of foreign enemies. However, when they sin, when they adopt the idolatrous ways of their Canaanite neighbors, the subjugation is swift and brutal. Chapter 6 of the book of Judges begins, And the people of Israel did evil in the eyes of God, and God delivered them in the hands of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, and because of the Midianites, the people of Israel made for themselves tunnels, which were in the mountains and caves and fortresses. The conditions that the Jewish people faced prompted them to hide. They weren't able to venture out in the open. They did tunnels, they'd live in caves in the mountains just to survive the terrible conditions of their oppressive overlords. Worse still, the Midianites adopted a scorched earth policy. The verse tells us, After the Israelites had done their sowing, Midian, Amalek, and the Kadamites would come up and raid them. They would attack them. They would destroy the produce of the land all the way to Gaza and leave no means of sustenance in Israel, not a sheep, not an ox, and not a donkey. They come with all their livestock, swarming as thick as locusts, and they graze and eat up all the produce. Their camels were innumerable. They would thus invade the land and ravage it. The Jewish people, because they have strayed away from the path of God, therefore God allowed them to be overtaken by this horrific and heinous enemy. And it's important to stress that this is actually a reflection of the heightened spiritual state of the nation. Because they are living in such a spiritually acute way, their relationship with God is immediately exhibited in the relationship that they had with other people, meaning that the consequences of their spiritual character were directly experienced and manifested, and moreover, it was proportional to their spiritual character. So when they sinned, it was immediately reflected in the conditions around them, and the degree of their sinfulness determined the degree of the oppression. Because at this juncture, the Jewish people had sinned a little bit worse than it was previously. Therefore, the oppression that resulted from that sinning was also worse. It wasn't just subjugation to a tyrannical enemy. It was also the scorched earth policy, there was economic decimation. The things got so bad that the people cried out to God. And this is, of course, expected. The Jewish people realized that the reason why their treatment was so severe was because they were spiritually lacking and they tried to fix it. And God responded by sending them a prophet. The prophet comes, he rebukes them, and he tells them, Thus said the Lord, God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, I brought you forth from the house of slavery, and I saved you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of those who oppressed you. I drove them out before you. I gave you their land. And I said to them, I am the Lord your God. Don't 
follow the God of the Amorites. Don't follow the gods of the Canaanites. But you have not obeyed my voice. The message is clear. If there's no repentance, there's going to be no salvation. And like continually happens throughout our history, a hero arose to be the next judge to save the nation from the persecution of the Midianites. An angel of God in the form of man appears to a man by the name of Gidon, the son of Yoash. And he's, at the time, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. Of course, a wine press is typically used to crush grapes and to make wine out of it, not to crush wheat and produce flour. The reason why he was doing this is to conceal it from the Midianites. Like we said earlier, their policy was of forced starvation. And they tried to grab a chokehold on all the food in the land and thus starve the nation to death. And therefore, any sort of food was contraband and would be immediately confiscated by the Midianites. So he went to a wine press to go thresh his wheat. And the angel appears to him and he tells him, you've been nominated by God to go save the Jewish people. Now, this is surprising to Gidon because he didn't really have an illustrious background. He was a very strong man physically and a man of tremendous moral and religious character. But he was totally surprised. Am I worthy for this role? I come from a very humble family and not from the most prestigious tribe. And even in my family, I'm the youngest. Who's going to follow me? How am I going to lead the nation in battle? How am I going to rally the troops for the grave task ahead? And the angel tells him, listen, what do you worry about the people? I'm telling you that God will be with you. If you have God on your side, who cares about everyone else? What do you need to worry about? Now, Gideon tells this angel who is masquerading as a man, he says, okay, show me a sign that this is all legit. Maybe it's a mirage. He really couldn't fathom, he couldn't believe that he was actually visited by an angel and he was nominated to be the next judge. So the angel tells him, go inside and get some food. So Gideon goes inside, he gets the food. We're told in scripture it was meat and matzah. And parenthetically, we're also told by the commentaries that it was Pesach. And all that was foreshadowing the fact that just like by Pesach, by the Exodus, by Passover, the Jewish people witnessed a tremendous redemption, so too... The Jewish people, they were about to experience a redemption akin to that of the Exodus. So he gets all the food. The angel tells him, okay, put it on the rock. The angel pulls out a staff. He touches the food with the edge of his staff, and the food is consumed by fire, thus proving his legitimacy and his credentials. And then the verse tells us, Deuteron realizes that it was indeed an angel of God. And he, of course, is terrified. Alas, O Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't look good for me. I've seen the angel. I've had this encounter with the angel. I maybe even questioned him. I'm negotiating with him. This is going to end poorly for me. But God tells him, no, all is well. Have no fear. You shall not die. Gideon has been tasked with leading the nation. He's going to be the next judge. He's going to save the Jewish people from this very formidable enemy and Deuteron also experienced a visitation from the angel. As a remembrance for this incredible encounter, Gideon erected an altar precisely on the spot where the angel visited him, an altar that in fact lasted for hundreds of years until the days of Samuel at the time of the writing of the book of Judges that altar was still there at that location. Important to stress, this was not an altar used for sacrifices. Sacrifices at that time were done solely in Shiloh, in Shiloh, which was the place where the Mishkan, where the tabernacle was located for hundreds of years. And all sacrifices outside of that location were prohibited 
It was instead an altar which served as a monument, as a testament of this incredible visitation of the angel. Now, why indeed was Didon chosen by God to lead the people? So our sages tell us that it was because he was an advocate and a lover of the Jewish people. Though the nation had descended spiritually, Gideon was someone who relentlessly prayed on their behalf. He sought, he demanded, he steamed ways to improve their situation, to grant them peace. And indeed, that is the mark of a great Jewish leader. Someone who loves and cares for the nation is someone who's worthy of being a leader. And the greater the love they have for the nation, the greater their stature is as a leader. Okay, so Gideon now knows he's the judge, he's in charge. What does he need to do right now? So before they're going to attack the enemy, the Midianites, he first has to deal with the problems at home. And the problems are home that the state of the nation was that Gideon's neighbors in his hometown and even his father, sadly, they had become idolaters. And in the city in which he lived, there was an altar that was used for idolatry. There was an Asherah tree, which was used for idolatry. And there were also bulls, communal bulls, that were being fattened and tended to because they were going to be offered as sacrifices for the idol. So the angel tells him, okay, here's your first mission. Your first mission is, I want you to destroy that altar. I want you to uproot that Asherah tree, that idolatrous tree, and I want you to take those bulls. After you rebuild the altar, consecrate it for God, take those same bulls, which have been designated for idolatry, and slaughter them for God. Now, for the people who had followed the ways of idolatry, the people of the town, this altar, this tree, these bulls are sacrosanct. You can't touch them. They're designated for an important cause. In the middle of the night, Gidon, together with ten of his people, they dismantle the altar. They uproot the tree. They rebuild the altar as an altar for God. They take those two bulls, they slaughter them, and they do what the angel had commanded them. They sacrifice the bull, fattened for idolatry. Instead, they gave it as a offering for God. Now, the Talmud notes that actually what Gideon did was, in other circumstances, prohibited. In fact, the Talmud lists that there's eight different prohibitions that he transgressed. Number one, it was outside of the temple grounds or the tabernacle grounds. Number two, it was at night. Number three, Gideon, who's not a Kohen, he was the one who performed the work done that really typically should have been done by a Kohen. Number four, he didn't use the proper vessels to process the sacrifice. Number five, he used vessels designated for idolatry. Number six, he used wood dedicated for idolatry. He also did not use the permanent altar, the national altar, which was at the time in Shiloh. And at that juncture, private altars were prohibited. And finally, seven and eight, he used as a sacrifice an animal that was designated for idolatry and also an animal that was actually worshipped for idolatry. However, that said, even though under different circumstances, this would have been prohibited because there was a matter of national importance, God temporarily, so to speak, waived those prohibitions to make that grand statement, to make the impact, things are changing. There's a new leader in town, and he's going to bring the Jewish people out of idolatry. In the morning, the townspeople wake up, and they freak out. Our altar, it's been shattered. Our tree, uprooted. Our precious bulls that we've been fattening, slaughtered. Who did this? The man who did it is a wanted man. We better find him, and we're going to kill him. Soon enough, they discovered it was it was Gideon, and the mob wanted blood. And his father, Gideon's father, Yoash, though himself an idolater, he told the mob, wait a minute, you're so worried about the honor of Baal, of the idol. Well, if he has any power, 
Let him fight. Let him avenge this defilement himself. You believe he's got power? Okay, if he's got power, he'll take care of it. You don't need to worry about it. You don't need to defend the idol. And the mob relented. As a result of that episode, Gedon was renamed Yerubal, which means let Baal fight. That became kind of the credo, the calling cry of his movement. Oh, Baal's got the power? Let him fight. You don't need to defend him. So with this initial effort began a process of ridding the nation of idolatry and rallying behind Gidon to go fight the Midianites. At the time, the kingdom of Midian, together with Amalek and other eastern nations, they crossed the Jordan and they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Gidon, he also was preparing for battle and he sent messengers to various tribes and he assembled a substantial fighting force. He asked for two more signs before he was ready to go into battle, and God indeed showed him that the nation was worthy of experiencing miracles. The first night, he asked for the sign, and he put out a woolen fleece, and he said, okay, I want the woolen fleece to get wet, to be covered in dew, but the entire surrounding area to be dry. And of course, he wakes up in the morning, and the fleece is drenched in dew, and the surrounding area is completely bone dry. The following night, he does the opposite, and the reverse happens. The fleece is entirely dry. Everywhere else is wet. God conveys to him the sign. He is with them. They're going to experience miracles, and let's go. Let's take on the Midianites. But on the eve of the battle, something quite surprising happened. Giron and his army were vastly outnumbered. He had assembled a fighting force of 32,000 soldiers. The Midianites and their cohorts, well, they had 135,000 soldiers. So the odds were heavily stacked against them. Yet God tells him, Gidon, you have too many soldiers. We read in chapter 7, verse 2, The Lord said to Gidon, you have too many troops with you for me to deliver Midian in their hands. What's going to happen? Israel may claim for themselves the glory due to me, thinking our own hand has brought us to victory. There's too many soldiers, Gidon, and you're going to win. And even though the odds are stacked against you, but I guess it's somewhat feasible that a fighting force of 32,000 could overwhelm a fighting force of 135,000, even though they're outnumbered, but it's still possible. And people are not going to realize that really it was God who's saving them. You have to pare down your fighting force. You have to shrink it. So we want to exacerbate the miracle, and therefore we need fewer soldiers. So what to do? How do you reduce the fighting force? So he's instructed to go tell the men, if anyone has the slightest bit of fear and trepidation for war, if you're any way fearful... Go home. Make the announcement, 32,000. Go home. Okay, I'm a little scared. 22,000 leave. So now it's 10,000 fighters remaining. The force has been whittled down. Is it small enough? It is not. It needs to be pared down yet further. It's not yet lean. There's still too many fighters. So God tells Gidon, we're going to do a water challenge to shrink the force yet more. He tells his army to go to the brook, to go to the water, and drink some water, and to see how the people drink. The people who leaned into the water and drank it with their tongues like dogs, those people, they're disqualified. The people who knelt down on their knees perhaps exposing a habit of bowing to idolatry. Or even if they didn't have a habit of bowing to idolatry, they themselves were not idolaters, but they weren't sensitive to not bend down to their knees. Those people, also, they were disqualified. Only the people that cupped up the water in their hands to drink, those are worthy of participating in the battle. 32,000 to 10,000, 
10,000, we're down to 300. A absolute skeleton fighting force. All you have is a mere 1% of the original fighting force to square off against a Midianite army that is still swelled with 135,000 troops. But there's a plan. They take their provisions, which consist of a jug, a torch, and a shofar apiece. And before the midnight attack, Gidon takes a brief reconnaissance mission. He goes to the Midianite camp. He overhears the Midianite soldiers talking to each other, and they have all these terrible dreams. They're dreaming that the Israelites are coming and they're going to steamroll them. He goes back to the camp, bursting with confidence. He tells the troops, we got them. They're terrified. We're going to win. He takes his minuscule army, divides it up into three. Three groups of a 100, one for each flank of the enemy, and leaving them the fourth direction to escape. The soldiers are instructed to take their torches and to cover them with the jug so they could travel unnoticed. They approach the enemy stealthily, and as the three groups each arrive at the edge of the enemy camp, they unsheath their torches, they shatter the jugs on the ground, they begin screaming like animals, they blow their shofar, and the enemy, they're totally surprised. And it's the middle of the night, and suddenly they see they're surrounded by fire, there's all kinds of noises, and they can't actually gauge the size of the enemy. They're assuming that maybe all 32,000 soldiers that had left, that was just a ruse. And they start freaking out, and they descend into chaos. They start slashing each other and fleeing like madmen. And the commentators explain what the theory here is. Gidon was inflating the assumed size of his fighting force. At the time, it was standard practice that each army had one torchbearer and one man with a trumpet. And here you have 300 torchbearers and 300 trumpets. You're assuming it's a a huge fighting force, and they totally lost it, descended into absolute chaos, started killing each other, didn't know who was the enemy, and fleeing. Incidentally, this is a similar tactic that was used by the Confederacy in the Civil War, because in the Civil War, invariably, the Union Army had larger fighting forces. But you didn't exactly have any reconnaissance photos. You didn't really have any hard intel as to exactly how large the enemy was. So what the Confederacy used to do, did this uh, several times, they would march the same group of soldiers in a circle, constantly crossing that same juncture and the Union officers who see it, they're like, whoa, look Look how many soldiers are passing by. Really, it's just the same group of people, but, but they're assuming they're all different, and therefore, it in their heads inflates the size of the enemy. Here, it's 300 against 130-plus thousand soldiers, but it doesn't matter if they're acting crazy, if they're not fighting, if they're killing each other, if they're totally delirious, they are easy prey. The Jewish people begin their pursuit. And then those original soldiers that had fled because they were scared, well, now they're in the neighborhood. And now the Jews are are routing the enemies. They too join in and they too capture and behead the Midianite leaders and the rest of the Midianites scatter. Meanwhile, the kings of Midian are still at large. They had fled across the Jordan. Gidon continues in hot pursuit. He has another dwindled army, and he employs another unexpected military maneuver, and he captures the two kings and brings them back with them. He takes his oldest son and says, okay, you go kill these two kings. He refuses to do it. He's obviously not someone who has very strong leadership qualities. He didn't want to do it. Ultimately, Gideon himself slays them, and the enemy has been quieted. Now, during these incredible series of battles, Gideon had displayed superlative strength as a warrior, but he was also a great religious leader. 
And after the war, he shows great political tact and still in assuaging the tribes that felt that they weren't included in the war. So the Ephraim tribe, the tribe of Ephraim, they were a little miffed. They thought, well, we weren't included. We weren't invited. And he says, okay. He responds to them with humility and he's able to quiet those tensions. There were also several rebellious Jewish cities. They rebelled against him and he tended to them as well. And you don't, in effect, show that he had the complete package. He had all the abilities needed to be coronated as the first king of the Jews, essentially since Moses. And in 822, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, okay, you're it. Rule over us. You, your son, your grandson, we want you to be the monarch. You saved us from the Midianites. You've showed us such tremendous leadership. We want you to be the king. Not only that, you'll be the king and you'll start the new dynasty. And his response is really a typical reflection of the state of the nation at the time. He says to them, I shall not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. God shall rule over you. This is not a cliche. He's telling them, this is the nation now. They're capable of being subject to God, not to any man, not to any entity. You don't need me as a king. You have God as your king. However, he does make one request from the people. Because the conquered people were Ishmaelites, they used to have nose rings. Each of the warriors, each of the victorious warriors should give a nose ring and we're going to use that to make a golden monument. And the idea behind that was to show how many enemies they conquered, even though you get only one nose ring from each one of the enemies, but together create, to create a huge golden monument. So he takes all the gold and he fashions it into an ornate golden belt. He hangs it up in, a, in his city as a testament to the great miracle. And his intention was that people would see that, they'd remember the tremendous miracle, and that would bolster their commitment to God. Sadly, this monument ended up achieving the opposite aim. Eventually, the people ended up worshiping it as an idol. Again, with the Midianites vanquished, or at least suppressed, the land was quiet. The Midianites are not going to be ever again an antagonist to the nation. Gedon, we're told, went on to father 70 children, including Avimelech from a concubine. He's the next uh, important figure. He was a judge, but he didn't have any centralized authority. He was in his hometown, in his home, and he supervised the affairs of the nation at a distance because really they didn't need, need much supervision. Now, after he passed, that same pattern that has been dogging the nation for the whole era of the judges, it resumed. It repeated itself. The nation strayed. They restored their affinity for the idols. And again, they were oppressed. However, this time, it wasn't some sort of marauding foreign invader that was the new villain. In fact, the new oppressor was Jewish. Moreover, he was the son of Gidon and he was Avimelech. After Gidon had passed, he has his 70 sons. Ostensibly, they're all good candidates to replace him, but there's a certain vacuum. You can't really have leadership comprised of, of 70 leaders. It doesn't really work like that. So Avimelech, a little devilish, he exploited this situation by convincing a certain segment of the populace, the people of Shechem, why don't you support me as the next leader? I'll be the next judge. And he proposed to them. He says, listen, what do you rather? You want to be ruled by 70 men? All the sons of Yerubal, of Yerubal, of Gidon? Or isn't it simpler to be ruled by one man? They indeed gave him their support. And then he turned his attention to his many half-brothers, the 70 sons of Gidon. And he did something quite vile and heinous and macabre. He hired a team of mercenaries and assassins, and they converged on Gidon's hometown, and they slaughtered all 
but one of Gidon's sons, only the youngest son, Yosam, who was hidden, only he survived. And if you look at a kind of a retrospective of the 400 years of the era of the judges, this was the only time that someone seized power by force. And of course, the vile act of fratricidal assassinations, it's a blot on this time in history. But it's also important to stress, it was the only time that it happened. He had been influenced by the ways of the idolatrous nations around him, and that's why he acted in that manner. After the massacre of his 69 half-brothers, the one remaining brother, the youngest one, Yosam, he ascended Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is the same mountain upon which Joshua had instructed half the nation to climb and to give curses to the nation, to the Jewish people, if they behave in a bad fashion. He ascends the mountain, which is overlooking the city of Shechem, and he conveyed the following parable. The trees, they wanted a king. So they go to the olive tree, and the olive tree refused. So they went to the fig tree, and the fig tree also refused. So they went to the grapevine, and the grapevine did the same. Finally, they went to the thorn bush, and the thorn bush agreed to become king. So too, Osniel, who was like the olive tree, he rejected the kingship. Devorah, she was like the fig tree, and she rejected a Gidon, who was like the grapevine. He rejected it. Now you chose Avimelech, the least worthy candidate. He's the thorns. He is going to be your king. What a disgrace. And then he predicted that the people of Shem will regret their choice and his words proved prescient. Avimelech consolidated his monarchy, but after three turbulent years of rule, a rift emerged in him and the people of Shechem, the same city that elevated him to be the judge, and they launched a rebellion against him, uh, led by Gaal ben Eved. The first battle was completely one-sided. Avimelech crushed the opposition. He killed the city's inhabitants. He's, he destroyed its infrastructure. He salted its vineyards so that nothing would grow there. And then he burned down its tower, killing an additional thousand men and women. Again, Avimelech is demonstrating that he's not really a candidate to be a great Jewish leader or even a mediocre one. Avimelech's cruelty continued with his attack on the city of Tevetz. And like the people of Shechem, they too sought refuge in a fortified tower in the middle of the city. Again, Avimelech sought to burn it all down. This time, it didn't quite go as planned. A woman dropped a millstone on his head and crushed it. And as he was dying, he asked his attendant to slash him with a sword so that he will be spared the ignominy of being killed by a woman. With Avimelech's death, the prediction of Yosem, his half-brother, proved to be remarkably accurate. After the Avimelech debacle, two judges arose and they stabilized the nation, Tola ben Pua and Yair the Gileadite. They led the nation for 23 and 22 uneventful years, respectfully. And in general, we don't know much about their reign because it was entirely uneventful. There was no episodes, there was no outbreaks of idolatry, and the nation was at peace living with tranquility. But again, after Yair died, the pattern repeated itself. The Jewish people began serving all manners of idols. They forsook God, and new enemies arose to crush them. This time it was the Philistines from the west, together with the Ammonites from the east. And again, what happens when the Jewish people are crushed? They cry out to God. They want to be saved. And again, and again God responds via prophet, and says, well, okay, if you believe in the idols, why are you crying out to me? Go cry to the gods that you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And again, this message had its intended effect. It wasn't just to, to mock them, to rub salt in their wounds. It was to spur them 
to repent. The people took this castigation to heart. They discarded all the idols in their midst. There was a general outpouring of repentance. And they, though were leaderless, were spiritually ready to have a great leader to lead them in their war against the Ammonites. As the Ammonites were preparing for war, the people were somewhat frightened. They were leaderless. So they declared, let the man who is the first to fight the Ammonites, let they'll be the leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. And there was a very good candidate that they had. He was the right man for the job. His name was Yiftach Hadiladi, Yiftach from Gilead. He was a mighty warrior, even though he was someone that had somewhat of a checkered past. Sometime earlier, he was banished from his home and somewhat disowned by his family. Why? Because his father, Gilead, had a wife who bore him several sons, but he also had a concubine who bore him Yiftach. Thus, Yiftach was born from a union that was not cemented in wedlock. And even though he was a legitimate son of Gilead, his half-brothers questioned his paternity and they, so to speak, ostracized him. They made him an outcast. They banished him. They told him, you have no share in our father's property. You're the son of an outsider. And rather than fighting with his brothers acrimoniously, when the court ruled that he was not allowed to partake in his father's estate, Yiftach picked up, moved elsewhere in shame, and now they send him a message, oh, the Gileadites, we have this new enemy, and we're pretty sure you're the right guy. And even though we kind of sent you packing a little bit earlier, won't you come and lead us? And despite the fact that these are the same people that drove him away, when they asked him to lead them in battle, Yiftach agreed. He was a man of deep faith and piety, though he was unlearned. And he agreed to be the ninth leader of the Jewish people after Joshua. And he's going to be the next judge in the story. So we have this very difficult enemy, the Ammonites, and now we have a new leader, Yiftach, who's going to help us. And he begins his term with attempting to negotiate with Ammon. And he sends them a message. He says, okay, what, what do you guys really want? Why, do you, why are you coming to make a war against us? What's your desire? Is there any way that we can amicably resolve this dispute? And they respond by saying that we want to reclaim the land, the Transjordan land, that's now occupied by the tribes of Reuven and God, because when Moses conquered it hundreds of years earlier, he did it illegally, and we want to reclaim that land. So Yiftach gets into this whole long argument with them, and he clearly outlines, and lays out why it's not the case, why there's no legitimacy to their claim, but the nation of Ammon insists that this causes belly is justified. And the truth is, what they really wanted was territorial expansion. And the claim that Moses stole their land was just an excuse. And that's a common tactic. In fact, the very first casualty of World War II happened on the night before of the invasion of Poland in September 1st, 1939. The previous night, August 31st, 1939, a criminal was dressed up as a Polish soldier and he was taken to the to a German frontier town and he was shot. But that was all to create a pretense that the Poles attacked, they attacked this German frontier town and in fact the very next day when the German troops began attacking Poland, their justification was because the Poles came and they attacked us and therefore we're just responding to their attack. It's a similar kind of thing. When you really want to just fight and you don't have a good case, you make up one if needed. So it became clear to Yiftach that war with the Ammonites was inevitable. And he recognized that it's a tall responsibility ahead of him. So he made a decision that would prove to be maybe his undoing 
or one that would tarnish his legacy, but it was a decision that he made with the most noble of intentions. He declared that after the war, if he's victorious, the very first thing that emerges from his house after he wins, he's going to consecrate it for God and offer it as a sacrifice. That was his plan. And you know what? Seems like it worked. Yiftach, together with his army from Gilead, they defeat the Ammonites in battle. And Yiftach triumphantly returns home. And of course, the big question is, what will emerge from his house first? Will it be an ox? Will it be a goat? Will it be a sheep? What is he going to offer as a sacrifice to God to fulfill his pledge, to fulfill his vow? As he approached his home, his daughter, his only child, came out of the house with drums, dancing, rejoicing for the victory. What a catastrophic disaster. He sees her. He rips his clothing. He says to his daughter, Alas, you have brought me to my knees. You have joined those who trouble me. I have uttered a vow to God, and I cannot retract it. And here we see some of the problem of having a leader who's not a great Torah scholar. Because the truth is, he could have undone it, as we shall see. Now his daughter responds with remarkable sobriety and valiance, and she says to him, well, listen, father, you have uttered the vow to God. Do to me as you have vowed, because God helped you to win. Don't worry about it. Now, what, what has actually happened next is a bit unclear and subject to a debate amongst the commentators. So we'll read the text and then we'll see what the various commentators say. His daughter continued, let this be done for me. Let me be for two months. I'll go with my companions. We'll lament upon the hill. We'll bewail my virginity, me and my friends. Sounds actually clear what she was proposing. So what happened? So he tells her, go. And he let her go for two months, and she and her companions went and bewailed her virginity upon the hills. After two months' time, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. She had never known a man, so it became a custom in Israel that the maidens of Israel, they would go every year for four days a year, and they would lament the daughter of Yiftach, the Gileadite. So what exactly did happen here? So there are several differing opinions. Many of the commentators tell us that, of course, in in Judaism, human sacrifice is absolutely forbidden. This is not something that we do. In fact, this is something that Abraham already came to oppose, and that's, I think, that was the exclusive domain of the idolaters. And therefore, they argue that what Yiftach actually did to fulfill his vow is that he built his daughter a house where she lived in solitude, in seclusion. She just spent the whole day praying. Four days a year, her friends would come visit her and they would bemoan with her in her fate. And that's kind of a figurative way to explain what it meant as a, that she was given as an offering. She was like dedicated, designated, consecrated for God, and she was never part of the rest of the world. That's one opinion as to what happened. Others argue and they suggest that Yiftach, who was, again, a non-scholar, he erroneously thought that his will and his vow was legally binding to his daughter, when it really isn't, because your vow can only have effect for you, can't have a vow that affects other people. And therefore, he literally executed his own daughter, and as a result of that, he was roundly criticized for his behavior quite severely. Now, regardless as to which of these opinions actually happened, the sages tell us that regardless, there was a major problem because there is a system in in Jewish law for annulment of vows. And in fact, the greatest sage of the era, according to the tradition, was in fact Pinchas, This may sound odd because Pinchas, we remember him from the Torah. He is 
uh, the grandson of Aaron, and this would make him several hundred years old. But there is an opinion that suggests that actually Elijah and Pinchas is the same person. So in all likelihood, he was many, many hundreds of years old at this time and may, may have, and might have lived for much longer. But regardless, he was the person who was most qualified to annul the vow. But there was a little bit of a Mexican standoff here. Yiftach, he said, well, I'm not going to him. I'm the judge. He should come to me to annul the vow. And Pinchas said, well, I'm the greatest scholar. I'm the greatest sage. Yiftach, he's a non-scholar, a non-sage. He should come to me. By the time they finished arguing about it, the vow went ahead and the daughter was given as an offering, whatever that means according to various opinions. And the Midrash goes on to tell us that both Yiftach and Pinchas were punished as a result of what happened to Yiftach's daughter. Yiftach himself, the way he died was a very unusual way. Every place that he would go to, one of his limbs would fall off. And he died limb by limb. And that's why he was buried in various cities. Because every place he lost a limb, that limb was buried. And he died in that slow and painful way. And Pinchas, he lost his Holy Spirit, his connection to God, his prophecy that waned. So that was the first tragedy of Yiftach's judgmentship. But it wasn't the only tragedy. After the war was over... Though Yiftach had won, the tribe of Ephraim was again disappointed that they were not invited to partake in the battle. Yiftach, after all, had relied only on his fellow Gileadites. And this is the second time that this has happened. After Gidon won the battle, again Ephraim complained. Now Yiftach won the next battle, and the tribe of Ephraim is complaining. So they said to Yiftach, why did you march to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn your house down as a result. After Gidon waged war with the Midianites, the tribe of Ephraim lodged a complaint that they weren't summoned to join. But Gidon was quite talented. and He was able to skillfully assuage comfort, make them feel good, and able to mollify them. Yiftach was a different kind of leader. He didn't respond with humility. He did not respond with reconciliation. And this conflict escalated. He retorted to them, I and my people were in a bitter conflict with the Ammonites. I did summon you. You didn't come. You didn't come to save me from them. I saw you were no good. I saw you were no savers. I risked my life for you. The Lord, the Almighty delivered him to my hands. Why are you coming here to fight me now? You guys were not only not helpful in the war, but you should be very appreciative of the fact that me and my men risked our lives to save you. And this rhetoric escalated and mushroomed into a horrible, bloody civil war, the tribe of Menashe with Yiftach and the tribe of Ephraim in opposition. And we're told that uh, the that Yiftach posted soldiers at the crossings of the Jordan and that anyone who wanted to cross over the Jordan would be inspected to find out which tribe they're from. And if they were from the tribe of Ephraim, they're enemies. How did they know who was from the tribe of Ephraim? So scripture tells us that the tribe of Ephraim had a speech impediment. They couldn't make the shh sound the S-H sound. So the word shibolas, they are pronounce it sibolas. Someone crosses the Jordan, they say to him, okay, put a gun to his head proverbially, say the word shibolas. If he says shibolas, you could go. If they say sibolas, they would kill him. And this horrible episode caused the death of 42 thousand Jews. Thus, Yiftach's legacy, of course, it is marked by the tremendous defeat of the Ammonites, but also is tainted by the episode of his daughter and the vow and the civil war with the tribe of Ephraim. 
There is indeed ample room for criticism of his behavior, but it's important to stress that the criticism does not extend to his intentions. He was unlearned, he did what he thought was right, and he didn't consult with the Torah leaders, and therefore he was capable of making those uh, terrible mistakes. Nevertheless, the Talmud tells us, in the book of Roshanah, page 25b, that there's no difference in the degree of reverence that we must hold for the leader of our generation. And we can't say, well, you're no Moses and therefore I'm not listening to you. And the Talmud tells us that Gidon in his generation is equivalent to Moses in his generation and so on and so forth. Yiftach, even though he was a flawed leader, but in his generation, if he's the judge, if he's the man who God chose to lead the nation, he's like Samuel. In his generation, even the most minor of leaders, if they were appointed as a leader over the people, they should be viewed in your eyes as the great of the greats. Yiftach judged the people for seven more years. The verse tells us that he was buried in the cities of Gilead, not the city. And the reason why is because every place that he would go, he would lose another limb and they'll be buried. So he's buried piecemeal, uh, limb by limb in various different cities. The next judge after Yiftach was Ivtsan, who may or may not have been Boaz from the Ruth story. He had 60 children, 30, 30 boys and 30 girls. Imagine what the tuition might have been for him. After an additional seven years of judgeship, he passed away. And then Elon from the tribe of Zvulon judged for 10 years. Avdon, he had 40 sons and 30 daughters he followed and judged for eight years. There are still yet more challenges ahead. The pattern of the era of the judges will continue. And the next judge that we will meet in part three of the era of the judges is the most colorful, unusual, controversial, and misunderstood one of them all, Samson, Shimshon Agibar, Samson the Mighty, he is soon to follow to save the nation from a very imposing and oppressive enemy, the Philistines.